In this episode of The Interface, I sit down, using proper face masks, of course, with Anthony Annunziata, Core Product Line Manager for Amphenol Aerospace. Anthony has been in a number of roles since joining Amphenol in 2014. We talk about his time as a customer service manager and an operations manager, and how much perspective that experience has given him in his current role. We talk about his excitement with the new Tracer Rapid Prototyping product line and how this can greatly benefit his customers. We talk about his years at Elmira College studying philosophy, in particular existentialism, and how important it is to ask why. And we discuss his Desert Island music, movie, and maybe the definitive book for this game. This is The Interface. It's the first time I've sat face-to-face talking to someone, not not in life, but just with <laughs> podcasting. So if we, you know, for people listening, if we sound muffled, it's because we are um, exhibiting proper mask usage while we're in the uh, Amphenol Aerospace facility in Sydney, New York. Thank you for doing this today. Sure. You look thrilled. I am. <laughs> you can't, it's a mask. I, I know. You I can't, can't see my big grin. Yes. All right. Well, so... You are back into, I guess, for lack of a better term, product management yes. and marketing. Mm-hmm. Um, you had, you have had, when I look back and if I recall, many jobs over your time here yeah. at Amphenol over what six, seven years. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, but you are back as the product line manager of the core products at Amphenol Aerospace. Couldn't get away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you kept trying to come out and they kept pulling you back in. Are you Michael Corleone and Godfather 3? So what's that been like to be back um, in, that, in that role with that team, you know, working with those products that are such a huge part, not only of Amphenol Aerospace in Sydney, but the military and aerospace organization. And even, dare I say, it's probably one of the largest products, you know, product groupings in all of Amphenol. Yeah, I, you know, it's it's definitely a rewarding experience to be able to work with the folks that are, are in the core military products group here. Yeah. Uh, it's a really talented group of people. Uh, and I think going back to it after having, you know, my, my perspective broadened, if mm-hmm. you will, after having served some time in the customer service department and in operations, yeah. you know, it really gives me, it gives me a, a different outlook on the importance of the decisions that we're making. Mm-hmm. You know, things that seem like pretty standard, you know, your day-to-day job, pricing things, you know, designing things. You know, it's stuff that I used to take for granted, you know, just coming up through that side of the organization. Mm-hmm. And, you know, <laughs> after having been the victim of some decisions and the the <laughs> beneficiary of some decisions that were made well put by somebody in in the marketing team years ago. Yeah. Uh you know, it's really changed the way that I approach problem solving mm-hmm. and the way that I approach, you know, making decisions about things that would have seemed trivial in the past. So, you know, all in all it's it's a really exciting opportunity for me you know, not not everybody gets the opportunity to go get, you know, years worth of experience in other portions of the business, and then get put back in the place where they were when they seemed like a kid, mm-hmm. and you know, do it all over again. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's funny because the doesn't matter how many years pass, you're still dealing with the same problems, and you're still talking to the same people, and it's right. it's just funny to get back and and know that 
you know, some of the same conversations I remember having back in 2017 are, are ongoing today. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because you started and, and worked your way through multiple roles and levels within the product marketing group when you first got here for the first few years. And then you were voluntold, should we say, <laughs> <laughs> to assume the position of customer service manager, mm-hmm. um, which at the time um, was part of our the operations department here at the at the AAO facility. Right. So tell me, that's a it's a radically different. Although you're dealing with a lot of the same issues, it's a radically different work environment, and and I think just different in general, also being part of operations, at least at the time here. Sure. What was that like when you went to, to, to be the customer service manager? Well, when Ryan approached me with the opportunity, um, you know, I was a, I was a bit skeptical. Mm -hmm. Uh, it was, you know, during the time we were, you know, we were struggling with some specific, uh, operational challenges during that period. And everyone knew, you know, that's a tough job. Yeah. Uh, and I was a bit skeptical in, you know, more about my aptitude for it. You know, it's an important job. It's a really important role. Absolutely, yeah. It's, you know, for so many of our customers, it's, I would have been the most senior person at the company they ever had the opportunity to speak with. Right. So you bear a very heavy burden of responsibility to reflect well on the organization at large. Mm-hmm. And for a lot of our customers, AAO is Amphenol. Mm-hmm. There is no other Amphenol. Right. So I I often felt that burden while I was in that role, you know, and I constantly second guessed whether I was doing the best I could at representing the whole of the Amphenol Corporation to to this buyer or that buyer or you know whatever. But you know, it didn't matter who it was. You know, in many cases, it was it was just like. It was a big responsibility, and I really felt like I needed to do it well. Mm-hmm. I learned so much in that role. I learned more in, in the first six months of having that job than I learned in college. Mm, you know, it's it's. Uh, we talked a little bit about how I moved from department to department. When I was it in product, I got to deal with the design engineers a lot, right? And I so enjoyed working with a group of such, you know, excitable, insane, you know, mad <laughs> scientists, right? In, right? in many regards, these are some of the craziest people that this world has ever produced. Yeah. And uh, almost to a person, they would, you know, treat a new problem that came in from a customer like a kid opening a new Lego set on Christmas. Mm. You know, their eyes would glisten and they'd look at all the pieces on the table and they'd go, I know I can solve this puzzle. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was that was very enriching. You know, that it's it's great to have. It was a great way to to enter the business, knowing the kind of value that we offer customers. Mm-hmm. And it's very different in customer service. So those are a, a whole different host of problems mm-hmm. to solve. What I learned there was almost to a person, all, all, all of our customers, you know, as bad as it, it could get. And of course, as the customer service manager, you only saw the worst problems, <laughs> right. right? You're never you're never presented with just something easy. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was always like really thorny, months long issues. And what I can say is that in almost every one of these uh, major 
problems. As frustrated as the customers were, they were always impressed at the lengths we would go to make sure that we made things right. Mm -hmm. And that, it, it was just, it was in, incredibly enriching to have the support of the organization mm -hmm. to make sure that these people, these relationships that you've developed under duress, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the, the organization would support you when you said, this needs to be done. Mm -hmm. They would make it happen. Didn't matter how much it cost. It didn't matter what resources we need to put on it. They always made things right for the customer. And uh, I learned a lot about the culture of this place when I did that job. It's a very intense job. I've never had it, but, you know, doing a little bit in customer service and my, you know, indoctrination into this business years ago. Yeah, it, you learn more in your time in customer service, even if it's for less than a year, then you may learn, you know, your entire time combined here yeah. just because you just, it's just a, such a concentrated view of multiple parts of the business. Right. Um, and then being the manager of that team, then I think gives, gives you even more of a, a, a detailed perspective on, on how this organism works. But as far as how you then felt as you were done with, uh, with that particular role, like in your mind, what do you think was different? Like what did it instill in you as far as a value system or just a thought process from, from the business perspective? Well, you know, the interesting the interesting thing here is, uh, you know, and, and I learned this in operations too, where I had the opportunity to work with some of the most dedicated and personally accountable people that I've ever met in my life. Mm -hmm. and, and that's the entire department is right. like that. It's, it's crazy. The, you know, the self-flagellation even of these people <laughs> where they, they are committed, right? right. They're going to, they're going to get it done. It doesn't matter what it takes. They're going to do it. Yeah. And the common thread across all of these departments th that is woven in really to the very fabric of this company is the idea that we can always do things better. Mm -hmm. Everybody thinks that way. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's fascinating because, it, you know, and it comes from the management team who, as I was saying earlier, is there to support you and make things right for the customer. Well, they're also there to make things right for the employees. Mm -hmm. And, there is a culture here where we are encouraged to change things. If mm -hmm. we see a problem, we can talk about it. And we'll always find support in making structural changes or minor changes. Or We're all empowered to make meaningful organizational structural changes in the way that we operate our business. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's such an exciting environment to be in because of that. You can walk in. You can't hate your job, you know? You, yeah. Because if you hate your job in Amphenol, it's your own fault. <laughs> That's well put. Yeah, I never thought of, about it that way. But you talked about moving into operations. And so you then, after being customer service manager, moved into a really purely operational role. Mm -hmm. Just talk about that a little bit and how much of a <laughs> radical change that was for you. So I, you know, when, when I was approached with this opportunity, I thought, Oh, yeah. You know, I've spent the last 14 months or whatever it had been at that time, 13 months, 12 months, something like that, uh, expediting things for customers. And I knew everything there was to know about operations. Yeah. I was very wrong. Mm -hmm. Oh, I didn't. I didn't know. That's like, you know, 5% of right. what they're doing. Yeah. And it takes half their time, but it's 5% of what they do. 
it was like drinking from a fire hose, mm-hmm. right? And then you, you've got these revenue commitments and, and everything is flying at you so fast. And, and the speed, how quickly things change in operations, mm-hmm. it, would, it gives you whiplash, mm-hmm. right? Things could be fine one day and then the next day, oh, we're so far off the plan, you know? Um, we've got to get, kick it into gear. We've got to solve some problems. And, and just to, I think, put this in the proper perspective for people who may not know, what are we talking about when it comes to just breadth of product and the number of SKUs and and the number of components that are involved, both both um, you know manufactured here and purchased on the outside? I mean, just to give a scope for people of what just you were dealing with, who had had experience in product marketing, who had had experiences in customer service, and now you're put into an operations role and you have to deal with what seventy five thousand. SKUs mm-hmm. we deal with. Those are not all saleable. You know, some of them are components, mm-hmm. but you still have to build them mm-hmm. or buy them. At seventy five thousand, and some of them are in families, and some of them aren't. And inevitably, several times a month, you'll run into a part that we, you know, designed in in the seventies for one <laughs> program yeah. that, like, you know, went to Mars. And hasn't been used since then. And the, the only existing connector is currently on Mars, you know. Yeah. And uh, and and you have to build one, right? And and the the process documentation was lost in the flood a decade ago, and and uh, it's got no shared components with anything we've ever made before. And it looks like it was designed by the Martian that's currently using it, you know. <laughs> And and that would happen all the time. And and luckily, you know, we have some incredible capital here, mm-hmm. um, you know, unmatched for sure. It right here in Sydney, New York, and the process experts and the the machinists and the folks that we've got here that just have, you know, combined centuries of expertise and knowledge and talent. You know, just pure. That spark, you know, mm-hmm. that that genius. Mm-hmm. You could you could solve any problem, and sometimes you know it would take a couple of weeks, but you'd get it done, right? You would build that Martian connector, mm-hmm. um, and and that was always, you know, in, in much the same way as the design engineers were looking to solve problems for customers, the process engineering team and the operations folks uh, had a similar approach with solving operational problems. So to bring it back full circle then to what we started this discussion about is now being back in a product marketing management role uh, as the product line manager for that. You take that experience that you had as customer service manager, you take that experience as an operations manager now, and you talked about it enriching and enhancing your ability to think. How has that made you better at your job now? (laughs) All of the all of my friends in operations will laugh at this, but uh, quoting lead times mm-hmm. is something mm-hmm. that is a, a lot more nuanced than I used to think. Yeah, you know, it's it's not just a, a marketing tool; it's something that m- it means something. Yeah, and it affects the way that we do business on a very real level. Mm-hmm. So that is, you know, that is just one thing that. I take a lot more seriously now as a responsibility that right. I owe to the organization. Just not so cavalier about, right. yeah, we could do it in 12 weeks. Right, whatever. Yeah. It, yeah. It, it, it used to be, I'm, I 
am loath to admit this, especially because I'm being recorded, but <laughs> I used to not take it as seriously as I think it should have been. I, I think it's probably natural, especially if you don't know. Right. Yeah. So, I, I mean, that's just, that's just one of the many things, you know, I, I have made relationships with people uh, who are physically responsible for building the parts. Mm-hmm. And being able to talk to customers who run into specific issues uh, with, you know, edge cases uh, for usage on mm-hmm. products out in the field, I know how we put them together, you know, and I've always had that sort of broad knowledge. I knew, and we all know, how the components fit together to make a connector. Right. But some of the, some of the magic is not apparent to you until you've actually had to build them. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of magic there, you know. There, there really is a lot of information to be learned just, just being down there and watching people put our product together. In many cases, these are boutique part numbers. Mm-hmm. They're handcrafted. Mm-hmm. They're, they're honest, honest to God. They are made with love every day. <laughs> We walk down into that assembly facility that's right below us right now, and you'll see people who have their ups and their downs and their highs and their lows. And it, it, you know, it's, there's so much like raw emotion going around because they're, they're finding success and they're making the perfect part or they can't quite get this right Mm -hmm. and it needs to be right. And we're investing heavily in automation. we practically put a whole facility together down in Mesa, Arizona to focus on exactly that, right? We're, we understand the value of, of, an, of automated assembly wherever it's possible. Mm-hmm. But there's 75,000 part numbers. Mm-hmm. And not all of them look like round connectors with contacts arranged neatly in rows. Right, right. Some of them are really weird. <laughs> and some of them you are never going to get a robot to put together. Yeah. And that's where that's where these these folks these these human beings who we talk about making jewelry it's kind of a cliche sure. around the office you know right. oh we're putting together jewelry uh, in some cases you know it's harder than that mm-hmm. they don't just have to look nice they have to look nice at 15x magnification right um, and they have to perform in right. environments that no jewelry we would ever have to perform in right yeah. Those relationships that I've uh, established with the with the jewelry makers, you know, mm-hmm. the jewelers downstairs, yeah. um, has been really special. Yeah. You know, I have a, a greater appreciation for the work that goes in them. So now you're back, you're heading up this this product team, and I know that a lot of your your early work as you've been back is in developing some of these new mm-hmm. product uh, initiatives. Uh, almost R and D type projects sure. uh, to again get to that next level. You talked about capital investments that we've that we've made here at this facility, but just go through maybe a couple of those that I know that you're most excited about. Sure. So uh, Matt Simons mm-hmm. and his proof of concept group, yeah, uh, which really exists to develop a capability for us in additive manufacturing. And not just additive manufacturing, but in creative assembly. Mm-hmm. You know, we call it that. And it's it's not as easy as just taking a 3D model and giving it to the 3D printer mm-hmm. and having it spit out a comparable product. You know, we have patents on on some of the methodologies we use to turn a 
machine or turn a part that we would have machined on a lathe or on a mill mm-hmm. and are now printing. You know, it's it's really it's a it's a challenging process. Just like you have process engineers and you have machinists, you need the same level of technical understanding to produce a part on an additive manufacturing machine, mm-hmm. just as you do a lathe. Uh, and that's something I wasn't expecting. And I, I think a lot of people don't understand that, uh, which is why it's so important that we're making the investment now, not at, not just in the equipment, which is important and expensive, but in the people who know how to use it, who know how to take a part that was designed in the 70s or in the 80s or yesterday for a mill mm-hmm. or a lathe and turn it into something that can be printed out complete. What does that do for the customer who'd be interested in this? Sure. So we're very excited with the recent release of um, what we're calling the Tracer product series, which is not a product at all, but rather a capability of ours to turn your connector dreams into reality. And we've already you know, seen some success with some really creative customers of ours with some pretty wacky ideas of theirs that we, we've been able to make reality uh, very quickly. So that's, and that's always the rub, right? Is sure you have a, a prototype idea, but when you're truly innovating something, it has to be an, an iterative approach. Mm-hmm. It's the only way that works. If, if you don't need to iterate on a design, then it's not a step function change, right? It's not mm-hmm. a truly novel product. Right. Uh, so the, when we're working at the very edges of current technology, the, the bleeding edge, we need to give our customers the ability to iterate rapidly so if i can give the explain it to people like we're five explanation Uh, of 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 tracer it's basically taking let's just use a standard military connector like a 389 series three and typically you'd have x number of insert arrangements where you have contacts of varying sizes and engage in, in gauges that allow you to pass signal pass data pass power whatever it may be but you're limited typically to just those insert arrangements. Right. What Tracer allows you to do, I'll help you here with this Thank cell you. job. <laughs> what Tracer basically allows you and your customers to do is say, I don't like any of these insert arrangements. I have an idea where I just want to, I just only want to use like three of those contacts right. in there. Can you give me an insert with just the three contacts? And then you can say, yes, I can, based on this out of manufacturing and this tracer rapid prototyping product series that we have we can make your dreams a reality yeah right, right right so i mean that's a, in essence what you're what we're talking about yeah thank you for reeling me back in no 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 uh, you were you're passionate about it but <laughs> at the same time i just want to make sure that people go yeah but what does it actually yeah, do yeah so you know the 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 age-old demon in our business is the sheer amount of capital uh, investment in terms of tooling, hard tooling. Yes, that we this need is the point, right. In order to manufacture even the most simple commodity connector. Right. There's a lot of hard tooling in there, a lot of uh, tool steel that needs to be cut. Right. Um, any, even the most basic connector has four molded components in it. Mm-hmm. Molded components that in order to meet the rigorous aerospace industry standards need to be produced in, you know, very precise fashion. Right. We're not molding, you know, uh, army figurines. You know, those, little <laughs> army, those little green army men in right. Toy Story. Right. 
where there can be a little bit of flash on the right. on the bottom of the the stand there for the guy. GI Joe. That's yeah, there you go. That'll we're, work. Sure. We're not molding GI Joe right. figurines. Um, if there is flash on these things when they come out of these machines, they're they're no good and they need to be reworked. And that's a that's a that's a very difficult process. And it's one all of our customers have learned to put up with mm-hmm. uh, when dealing with connectors. And it's made our offering very static. And it convinces our customers that they have to work within the bounds of what exists today, even if that existing technology isn't keeping up to speed with their product, mm-hmm. you know, the, the boxes and the technology that they're making, because we're traditionally a pretty slow industry. Mm-hmm. And Amphenol Aerospace is committed to flipping that script, right? We want to be at the cutting edge of their development. We don't want to be the reason that they have to design something backwards. We want to help them grow or shrink, as the case may be. Right. You know, we 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 want to be their partnership in technological advancement. It provides more flexibility to them. Right. That's right. what it does, right? In essence. Yeah. So a customer can come in and and order it, it doesn't just have to be an alternate insert pattern, right? right. There could be uh, it, you could change the molded components if you want, but you could change the housing too. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't even need to be round, mm-hmm. you know. The, we haven't had a, a request like this, but I'm waiting for the day where someone puts together a connector that has no shape. Mm. It's not a polygon. It's not a circle. It's nothing. It's a blob, right? Maybe it's used to sandwich two PC boards together to connect mm-hmm. two two printed circuit boards together while routing around some of the board level components that are already on there. You know, a truly just undeveloped or just a truly unique product. Right. We can do that. We can Mm -hmm. support that. So how did a guy who studied philosophy and history at Elmira College Uh, end up at Amphenol Aerospace? Oh, well... um, (laughs) And why philosophy and history? (laughs) Maybe that's the better question. Yeah, so I I was always um, a bit of a a thinker, you know. I I wasn't, um, you know, I wasn't like Ryan who wanted to study political science, for example. It was too grounded for me, you know. I wanted to think. I didn't want to have to do anything. Mm -hmm. That's a bit tongue-in-cheek. But the the truth is I read a book in high school by Mm -hmm. Jean-Paul Sartre called What is existentialism Mm -hmm. and it's not a piece of writing of his that he was particularly proud of Mm -hmm. it was actually written as a very straightforward dumbed down version of his philosophy so that people his contemporaries because he was one of those few philosophers who was actually famous while he was alive uh, it was written f- so that people would stop misinterpreting him it was basically his his opus of anger Right, he was so tired of listening to people take his ideas and warp them uh, that he just put it all out in plain English or French at the time. But if, if he wrote it today, it'd be called existentialism for dummies. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. And I, I just for some reason, I was just enthralled with the way that he approached the world, and it it was really a a, a moment for me. I think this must have been junior year or something. Mm-hmm. And after having read that, it's a short book. I think it's only 200 pages or something. Uh, after having read that, I knew I wanted to be a philosopher, right? Because I, I started looking at the, way, the world very differently from that moment on. How uh, so? It, it's, it's, 
you you ask the question why a lot more often. Mm. What I've as a parent, that's not a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, by the time you're asking these whys, you're not relying on your parents for okay, answers. Okay, fair but, enough. Yeah. Um, you know, the, it's what it's taught me is that I to question all of my preconceptions. Mm-hmm. That's the single most powerful thing it's done for me. Uh, the study of philosophy, that is. I always find myself assuming things. Assuming things I have no right to assume, and I'm not sure, I, you know, on the spot, I probably won't come up with any good examples, but it, it's just, you know, you have to ask yourself every once in a while, at least once a day, something will come out of my mouth where I think, really, is that true? Right. Why, why do I even think that? Like, what evidence do I have to believe that that is the case? Mm-hmm. Um, and it ends up, it's not for everybody, right? Because you can, this, this, um, it's, it, it, it can lead to a lack of self-confidence for a lot of people. Uh, but in, in the existentialist vein of things, and I consider myself an existentialist, uh, it's, it's a, it's really like kind of a superpower, mm. right? Because even though you recognize, and this is a, this is probably less existential and more Socratic, but I'm sure our listeners won't care. You know, it's less a, oh, I don't know anything. <laughs> Um, and, and more of, well, no one really knows anything, right? So let's just talk about it. Mm. And I, there is no right answer Yeah. and I'm not expecting a right answer, but if you can convince me of your side of things, then cool. We can just go on, we can move on with that assumption instead. Having studied this though, right? Yeah. How do you bring in Jean-Paul Sartre? Am I pronouncing that right or close? It's tricky. Whatever. Uh-huh. To... <laughs> managing a product line and and asking why. Yeah, so... Is this, there any relationship? Can you, a, can you apply? This, I guess the better question is, can you apply some of those learnings, some of those teachings that he had, you know, even when he felt the need to, you know, dumb it down and explain for people? What, what can you take from that and say, yeah, I'm actually using some of my college education in my role? So existentialism, not really. Yeah. You know, the actual tenets of existentialism don't apply on a day-to-day basis. Um, and in fact, if I were a true existentialist, I probably wouldn't have a job. But, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the, the basic tenet of my education as a philosopher uh, do apply all the time, every yeah. day. Asking that why question, challenging not just your own, challenging your own assumptions gives you the ability to challenge other people's assumptions. Mm-hmm. There's a, a great value to being skeptical as long as you can find the right balance. Right. right. So you you can't let it run away with you because then you'll never find the right answer. Mm-hmm. Right. You need to have you need to have acceptance, right? That I'm not going to make the right decision all of the time, but I will at least consider all of the options. Mm-hmm. And I, that's just such a such a fundamental part of me now, and I attribute that to my education. So I've been asking that this question or these questions now for uh, the past few episodes, and figure it, it logically segues nicely into this. If you are stuck on a deserted island, uh-huh. and you had a choice to bring your favorite book. Should we go ahead and assume it's what is existentialism, or would you go with something else? No, that's not my favorite book. No, <laughs> it's not a very good book. Um, no, it's not. It's not good beach reading. Yeah. If I had to pick a book mm-hmm. 
I might pick the dictionary. Now there's a unique answer, but I like it. I like it. Uh, the dictionary could teach me something. Yes. That's a long, it's a long enough book. You know, I'm talking like the Merriam-Webster unabridged. Yeah. You know, the thing that could, you could wear it as a breastplate. Right. You know, that, that would give me something to do. Ooh, I, I really like that. Heck, I might change my answer at some point. How about album or artist, musical artist? So Phoenix, I don't know if you know the band Phoenix. Yeah. So they made an album called Wolfgang Amadeus Phoenix. Right. And Phoenix is 1901. Not, yes, 1901. Wolfgang, Listomania. Yeah. So this is not my favorite artist. Mm -hmm. Phoenix is not my favorite artist. But this is my favorite album. And it's really just like some sort of weird trick of nostalgia. Mm -hmm. Because I remember one autumn. It came out in, in like a, a September of 2002. 11, I think it was. Yeah, it's probably close to 10 years old. Something yeah. like that. And yeah. I remember listening to it the f for the first time on my way home from college. Mm -hmm. And I was driving, and the leaves, uh, you know, from the, the drive from Elmira to Connecticut is, is beautiful in September. Yeah. Uh, there's plenty of, of things, wonderful colors to distract you from the headlights in front of you. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> I remember just listening to that album on repeat for the I don't know, four hours or whatever it took me to get home. Yeah. And it just, it brings back those memories for me. Yeah. Some, for some reason. I just, I love that album. How about movie? I think I might surprise some of the people that know me with this answer. You already surprised me with dictionary. So. <laughs> That's probably the yeah. lamest answer you've ever gotten. No, I'm actually quite intrigued by it. Uh, the Hunt for Red October huh. was my dad's favorite movie. That's a great movie. It that never lets up from beginning to end. Yeah. And you're constantly on the edge of your seat, even in the slow moments. Yeah. Or quieter moments, I should say. That's it, a great movie. It's probably another another trick of nostalgia. But I, I love that movie too. With the exception of Sean Connery playing a, a Soviet submarine captain <laughs> without even trying to There's have no some sort there. of Russian accent. No, yeah. not at all. <laughs> not at all. It's his complete Scottish accent yeah. the, the entire time. But uh Oh, that's, that's great. So the Dictionary, um, Phoenix, and the Hunt for Red October. Yeah. That's fantastic. Well, Anthony, Anthony Annunziata, who if you ever see a picture of Anthony Annunziata and you hear the name Anthony Annunziata, <laughs> his face won't look like the Anthony Annunziata that you think of. No, it won't. <laughs> I pick on him all the time about it. But thank you very much. It's been a very great conversation. I appreciate you doing this today. Sure, I'm glad to do it. Thanks. Thanks.